Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. Support for Talking Heart on WVIK comes from the people at Quad City Bank and Trust, helping the local community with their banking and financial needs for more than 20 years. Information is at QCBT.com. Support also comes from the estate of Margaret Skinner, a longtime friend of WVIK and lover of the arts. This is Carolyn Martin, and I'm talking art today with Andrew Wallace, director of collections and exhibitions at the Figgy Art Museum about the William L. Hawkins, an imaginative geography exhibit that is currently on display. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. Thanks so much for coming today. You know, you know, there's been so much talk about the current French Modern exhibit that that it's important for visitors to know that they will also see a knockout show of a very different nature when they go to th- see the French master's work. How would you describe William Hawkins' art? Well, he is considered a folk artist. And uh, for me, um, the this idea or the construct of folk art um, uh, sort of expanded when I saw an exhibition or a collection of work that came to the Smithsonian's American Art Museum in the late 1980s. That collection expanded the idea of what uh, traditional folk art uh, was considered to be, and in particular, uh, the way in which artists made work and the materials that they used to make it. Mm-hmm. His work is, when you walk in, you see it immediately, and there's the, kind of like a, a little prelude or a short introduction to his work when you first come into the, the giant foyer um, at the Figgy, right by the main elevator, there is some of his work, though the majority of the exhibit is up on the fourth floor, and it, it you see it immediately, and I think you, most people kind of stop in their tracks when they see it. Sure, and I, I hope so. The That section, uh, that first section that, that introduces you to Hawkins' work is largely comprised of the uh, sort of the architectural scenes. That was one of the major themes of Hawkins' work. Um, And so he was principally interested in looking at the buildings that were being built um, uh, around uh, downtown Columbus. And uh, And that's Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, Ohio, yes. And he painted those because he was interested in them, and he referred to them as these giant temples. And then his approach to painting them uh, often incorporated the use of non-traditional colors just to liven them up and make them more exciting. Mm-hmm. They are so lively. Um, and they're large. They're, the colors are very, very vivid and brilliant. Um, and uh, he uses a lot of, of uh, collage and assemblage, which is, which is does, interesting. Yes. Yeah, and that's one of the uh, things that is discussed in the in the catalog and certainly in the exhibition. Um, his use of imagery from the magazines and calendars and um, whatnot that he collected to use and to reuse um, often inspired the subject matter of his works, particularly the animals and the exotic uh, creatures that he pictures, but also to uh, the imagery of the Last Suppers, which was a major series of works for him. Um, something that he was interested in exploring, and the four of the eight that are shown at the Figgy incorporate collage in many entertaining and interesting and innovative ways. One of the things that's important about uh, knowing about Hawkins, his work, was that he 
had a good handle on the types of materials that he had collected. And so when he was working on a particular piece, he could reach into his suitcase, which he called his research, and grab something that he felt was particularly appropriate um, for that particular piece, whether it was a set of eyes, a model's, you know, maybe a, a heavily lashed a set of a woman's eyes or uh, or maybe it was a scene, maybe a picture of a sculpture, or in many cases there are images of buildings uh, that belong to the Smithsonian Institution, and that is uh, partly owed to the fact that one of the magazines that he often used was Smithsonian Magazine. Hmm. Yeah, what, it's just so interesting. So he, he used a lot of, um, he loved magazines, he loved pictures in general, he would cut out portions of those or an entire page and then use some of that in his paintings and and they're very small um portions of it but but they really pop out like you alluded to the to animals that he's painting he will sometimes have then human eyes that he's cut out and placed Indeed. on the yeah. on the larger animal uh, my favorite is the uh, the philadelphia museum's um uh, matador and I'm, I'm skipping i'm forgetting the name but uh, matador uh, with a bull, and the bull has clearly feminine eyes and eyelashes collaged onto it. So you have this, and I'm sure that he he chuckled to himself when he he chose to do that. But it's very effective, and it's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you see the collage a lot in the animals, and in then his uh, religious subjects in the in the cityscapes, and he did a lot of those, like yes. the the foyer um, area. When you first walk in, it's mainly cityscapes, and mm -hmm. and then that's. Um, there's less collage uh, within those. Yes, um, and and in those primarily, he was interested in the buildings, these these fine temples, and um, and some of them are older structures that have long since uh, been torn down, um, such as the Union Station image. But then there's the Vern Riff uh, Government Center, of which there are several examples, which. Um, is a prominent uh, fixture in downtown uh, Columbus, Ohio, right across from the state capitol. So it's really, it was something that inspired him and, and sort of man's ingenuity. And certainly the, uh, that is what is important to his art, is being inspired by imagery or by uh, personal experience and incorporating that into what he he did, and of course, he was he was uh, eighty six or eighty five when he was discovered in nineteen eighty one, and he lived a very productive, almost ten years of producing art, um, largely because his uh, his work has been had been uh, drawn to the attention of collectors and and gallerists mm -hmm. who. Uh, saw an opportunity to share his art more widely. Mm -hmm. You mentioned his age, and we should talk about that because it's it's really really amazing. He was he was born in 1895, and and and, and he paints that um, almost all of his pictures, which is so funny. It's he writes uh, born in 1895 in Kentucky or something like yes, that, and it's right. it's literally part of his signature. Uh, July 27. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's there's two elements to that story, as I understand it. One um, is that he wanted to make sure that people understood understood who had created the works. The second was that he was aware of people, unscrupulous people, stealing or copying the works of other artists. And there were several other self-taught artists working in Columbus with whom he was familiar. Um, and he wanted to make sure that uh, his work was not uh, stolen and that uh, everybody uh, could attribute it properly to him. Mm -hmm. Now um, let's talk a little bit more about his life because um, because his art, in a way, reflects 
um, reflexes life, um, like, uh, you know, our, our, the accumulation of our experiences do, um, you know, it, it usually comes out in our in our art it's displayed we we can't we can't ignore our past experience so he was born um in 1895 in Kentucky that's correct in eastern Kentucky and um I didn't know anything about him as a man or uh or his background or his race when I first saw his work uh but I was immediately drawn to it and I think it is that connection with his past and his experience, which he invests in his work, which is quite interesting. And of course, this is not something that's exclusive to Hawkins. It's something that is a part of every artist. In fact, the artists we're showing now at the museum, whether it's John Bloom or, or the French moderns, they are all infusing in their work uh, their uh, wealth of experience. And, and uh, that's pretty clear in Hawkins' mm -hmm. work. Yeah, because he was raised on this farm, and and Kentucky's known for their horses, and um, so he had. A, I think he actually trained horses. So he, um, his his animal subjects probably reflect that in a way. Yeah, his and I think they do. And, and he, with, it, of them. Yes, and when he was he was interviewed by Gary Schwindler, who's uh, there's an essay by him in the in the catalog for the exhibition. But Gary Schwindler. Uh, did some extensive interviews with Hawkins and was able to get to the bottom of his inspiration. And certainly growing up on this farm uh, until his mid-teens, um, uh, he, uh, he had the luxury, uh, unusual for the time, of being in this rich and wonderful place and, and having a, a supportive family and um, also working very hard probably with the idea that at some point he would also be a farmer or raise animals. Um, but it was clearly in his uh, conversations with Gary Schwindler uh, something that was near and dear to him. And uh, certainly it's, the evidence of that is uh, borne out by mm -hmm. viewing his works. Yeah. Gary Schwindler was his biographer. Right. And then uh, William Hawkins moved to Columbus when he was a young man at around yes. the age of 21. Right. So um, he was always an industrious person. Uh, that's clear, too, in his art and the way he, he takes and uses found materials to create what he creates. And he lived a, a long, obviously long and good life, uh, not very wealthy, of course, um, given the, the trials and tribulations of being a black man in 1920s and et cetera, uh, Columbus, Ohio, but um, he persevered and he made a living in all the ways that he could, uh, from driving trucks to painting signs to building homes. Uh, so he uh, really sort of thrived uh, in his modest way. And I think all that, too, comes out through his work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so one, there's so many aspects of the story I think are fascinating, but one to me is that he was, um, it was quite late in his life when he uh, enjoyed the success yes. from his artwork. And uh, he was largely unknown until 1982. So what, sure. what happened in that year? So, uh, well, just prior to 1982, he was befriended by a young man named Lee Garrett, who had just gone through the Ohio State University art program, and um, I believe he'd gotten an MFA in um, sculpture. Uh, he was befriended by Garrett. Garrett was impressed immediately after meeting him and seeing the work that he was creating that Garrett felt that he should advertise Hawkins and his work more widely. 
his work was submitted to Ohio, Ohio I'm sorry, excuse me, the Ohio State Fair uh, Amateur Art Competition, and uh, for which uh, two of the works, I believe, won prizes. Uh, and one work in particular was purchased then by the juror of that uh, competition, uh, a man named Robert Natkin, who is an abstract painter from uh, New York. So with that, there's uh, clearly Hawkins is enjoying the attention that's being paid to his work. And then incentive is given to him to continue that and perhaps even ramp up his production um, because he wanted to sell works. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of a part of his his personality, his background, doing whatever he could to make money to get along. Yeah. Um, but the beauty of that, of course, is that it inspired him to just create. And he created things that he felt would be interesting to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the the book, if, if not all of the um, pieces in the exhibit right now, were produced during this stage in his life. So he yes. was in his very late 80s to early 90s, which is which is just amazing. It is. A, it is amazing. But it's a sort of a testament and a sort of representative of his life Mm -hmm. um, uh, being industrious and being resourceful uh, and in many ways being practical and and making do with what you have. Yeah. Before uh, before he was discovered, if you will, I know he was painting, um, he was using some just paint that he found and he was Mm -hmm. painting on other objects that he could could just find and secure. But then after um, Lee Garrett befriended him, um, he started using these larger Masonite panels. Yes, and, and as the story goes, Lee Garrett um, wanted to support him. And obviously, you, you can't always find the right materials um, when you're scavenging. Uh, say, for instance, you can't always find perfectly shaped uh, pieces of plywood or, or Masonite, for that matter. So Lee was um, pre-cutting uh, Masonite for him. Um, sometimes as many as four by eight feet, as large as four by eight feet. And, um, and so Hawkins took full advantage of that and created some amazing works, uh, whether it was found material or material provided by Lee Garrett, um, at that time. And, and so, um, it really allowed him to blossom and his, his work to blossom and, and yes, late in life, but there are many people who are highly productive late in their lives, um, more so than the first half of their life. So that's not unusual. Uh, but what is, uh, I think beautiful about the story is that he was able to thrive and, and create work that made him happy to create, but more than that, be able to then sell, uh, to somebody else who would be even more happy to own it. Mm-hmm. Besides his use of found objects, one thing I loved is the way he created depth and and the specific material that he used to do that on some of his paintings. Yes, uh, the the cornmeal that he incorporated into his paint, as the story goes again, Lee Garrett had been using sand in his own works um, and perhaps a, a lack of sand um, uh, encouraged Hawkins to incorporate cornmeal. Um, and one of the things I think that is is interesting to me is that so when I was uh, working for the Smithsonian, I had friends who were artists, and they were also uh, inspired by this collection of folk art, and in particular the way the innovative use of materials, um, regardless of whether the artists were self-taught or not. Um, they uh, were always exploring and always innovating in small ways. 
Um, and, and maybe not, the uh, Hawkins was maybe not the first person to incorporate cornstarch, but his use of cornstarch inspired uh, friends of mine. Cornmeal. Oh, corn sorry, cornmeal. Uh-huh. Sorry, cornmeal. Uh, his use of cornmeal inspired my friends to try, who were artists, to incorporate that into their work. So, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> what's well, very I, effective? It is, and it's and, um, and there's this textural textural element to it. There too. is a there is yeah. a there is a textural element, and it works very well. Um, and obviously, it was a success for for Hawkins, and so I think. Um, that's one of one of the wonderful things about art is that it can inspire uh, both the people who view it, but other artists to take up these ideas and and explore them and produce um, even more work. Mm-hmm. Besides the um, besides his animal figures and his cityscapes, he has this. You have this really incredible uh, series of Last Supper works uh, created by him and. Um, I believe eight of the nine uh, that are out there somewhere you've amassed in this exhibit. We have, and, and we're very fortunate. They've come from all over. Um, and so we're able to share those with everybody. And uh, I think the important thing is is that you're able to look at them and see the many ways in which he sort of explored or wrestled with or discarded earlier ideas in the creation of new versions of The Last Supper, uh, I believe the original uh, Last Supper that he was looking at was not uh, Leonardo's, but he was looking at essentially a Last Supper on black velvet, uh, <laughs> which uh, inspired him and his. So a little non-traditional sure, and, view of the Last Supper, right? And so he was he was trying to outdo that, and so he was using that as his model, and he was doing great things, mm-hmm. I think. With and it. he uses a lot of collage in those. He uses a lot of collage in the in the last four, so the four. Uh, most recent of the eight that appear at the Figgy um, have collage in them. My favorite being that the face of Jesus is uh, Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder, the musician. Yeah. <laughs> and he also has little collage pieces of their food um, on the, the table. And, and they're straight out of a Stouffer's uh, <laughs> frozen um, food uh, commercial or advertisement. Yeah. Tell us, uh, what's the meaning behind the exhibit's subtitle? And that that's an, an imaginative geography. The uh, subtitle comes from an essay that Gary Schwindler had written in 1989 for Rico Moresca catalog of Hawkins' work. Um, as Susan Crawley, who's the exhibition curator, and I wrestled with the idea of what we were going to call uh, the exhibition and, of course, the attendant catalog, um, I had uh, been reading and rereading many of the, the essays and articles that have been written about Hawkins' work, and I had uh, come across the imaginative geography. Um, uh, so that was a phrase that Schwindler, Schwindler coined. had used, that he had mm-hmm. coined. And that's reflective of uh, essentially the experience, Hawkins' experience. And, 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 of course, with experience, you are able in many ways to be much more imaginative than you would be without. Um, so that's sort of the subtext. But he's uh, Schwindler is sort of summing up Hawkins' uh, experience within this phrase, an imaginative mm-hmm. geography. So within the geography, meaning reflecting like the places he knew well. Sure. His, the farm in Kentucky, the, the his beloved Columbus, Ohio, and then and then just twisting, twisting it, that, adding his own imagination. Yeah, the topography of his imagination, if you will. So that, that landscape, which is sort of internal in, in his memory. Mm-hmm. 
there's this display case in the exhibit that contains some personal items of Hawkins inside. inside. And you'd mentioned sure. earlier his uh, infamous suitcase, which is like very battered. And and uh, and describe again what he kept inside, because that's such a yes, really uh, lovely part of the story too. He kept he kept his newspaper and magazine and and article clippings in the suitcase. And he would, and there's a video, sorry, a film that was made about William Hawkins in 1987, which uh, is a portion of which is available on YouTube, uh, directed and produced by Jeffrey Wolf, uh, where Hawkins is sifting through and explaining to the people who are uh, filming him and uh, speaking to him about how he goes about the process and, and, and is grabbing, and this is where he grabs material um, for specific use in in the work that he he's working on in mm-hmm. front of the camera, and it's, so it's that sort of awareness of his materials and and how he wants to use them um, that that is sort of common to artists. You you create an inventory of materials and and when you are creating a work, you know exactly what you want to do and you know exactly where your resources are and you employ them in the way um, that you see fit. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's just it's just really fun that he kept kept them. All, mm-hmm. all together in this in this space in this suitcase which you've acquired. Um, you, uh, um, we talked earlier about uh, about the term folk art, and Hawkins is a self-taught artist. Um, and uh, you had mentioned earlier too that this opened up the box of possibilities for him creatively. Yeah, I I think so. I think certainly when you look at the history of art, just generally speaking, the advent of photography in the in the nineteenth century sort of did away with this idea that artists had to uh, create meticulous copies of nature. Um, why paint it if a, photog- a photograph can um, do it just as, as well? And then with the advent of Dada and that sort of thing, you have uh, the idea of what art can be has just exploded. So when we look at um, uh, Hawkins and we look at um, this term of folk art or self-taught art, uh, we now are open to interpretation as to what that can mean and what that can be. And I, the, the analogy that I like to make is I think about, um, having been a musician myself, I think about uh, artists who have that urge to create, uh, musicians in particular, or writers too, who they just do it. Um, they just get to work and they and they do it, whether it's in their garage or their basement. They grab a guitar or a bass or they uh, put pencil to paper and start writing and they create. Um, and we don't say, for instance, we don't point at um, Bruce Springsteen and say, oh, he's self-taught and then somehow diminish him as an artist uh, because of that. Mm-hmm. And there's history is full of great examples of people who essentially are self-taught, Ernest Hemingway, uh, with all his faults, uh, you know, he, he taught himself how to write and, um, you know, and, and, and that was enormously, uh, influential on 20th century literature. Um, similarly, and I, and I like to think of the punk movement, uh, in particular, the progenitors bands like television and Richard Hell and the Voidoids, um, as being uh, these, these young people who, um, haven't gone, maybe haven't even gone to college, but who are have this creative impulse and they put that all together. 
um, to create something that's new and, and different. And, and so we can accept that in music, but for whatever reason in academia, we have a harder time accepting that in visual art. But there's a quote um, in uh, Richard Hell's book, uh, which is a recent, a relatively recent book, I, I Dreamed I Was a Very Clean Tramp, is the title of it. But he's talking about Robert Quine, who was a guitarist in um, his band, The Voidoids. And, but I think it sums up uh, how we feel about artists like William Hawkins, which is to say, um, it was the depth of feeling, and this is the quote, it was the depth of feeling, not any pioneering explorations or any technical facility or any kind of academic uh, sophistication that set him apart. And, and that, I think, sort of sums up uh, that feeling you get when you look at a work of art, regardless of whether the, the artist is trained or, uh, you know, from the academy or, or self-taught, it doesn't matter. Um, there's usually some um, inner uh, spark or spirit in that work that, uh, that connects us with it mm -hmm. and, and keeps us interested. Yeah, there's so much joy in his paintings. That's that's the emotion that I feel when I look at them. And, you know, when you were talking earlier, you reminded me, actually, of the academically trained artist um, and uh, and then the Impressionists. Sure. So it's it's actually, there's a great corollary with the French Modern Exhibit because those a lot of those painters were considered crass and they weren't felt to have any technique at all and they were they were ridiculed as producing these terrible paintings and and so there is definitely a, um, a you know a correlation sure and uh, they, between that and, those and artists, William Hawkins yes those artists were challenging the academy in the, in the way they used paint and the paint was becoming um, there was a taboo about using paint um, in a way that uh, that gave away the hand of the artist um, there's a painting in the in the exhibition by Manet it's a portrait of a young woman. Uh, of the French Moderns exhibition, and um, I, I encourage listeners to go look at that painting and look at the way the eyes are painted, and then go look at some of the eyes um, that were painted by Hawkins in his exhibition. So there is a there is a connection there. It's not necessarily one where Hawkins has studied art history, but the connection is that artists um, have all these opportunities within their. Uh, imagination and in their arsenal to explore uh, creating works of art. Um, and if we limit that, then we're limiting our experience of the world, I think. And mm -hmm. so that connection between Hawkins and, and this eyes of this young girl in the Manet's painting, I think, is, is quite interesting. Yeah. I'm going to have to go relook at that. <laughs> well, let's also talk about your personal role in bringing this exhibit together. Uh, you were the managing curator for this work. And yes. describe what that entailed and how this came about. So uh, as you might uh, know, the Figgy has a very small staff. And so uh, we invited, um, uh, as we discussed the possibility of doing a Hawkins ex exhibition, um, we invited uh, uh, the input from a number of gallerists and people who were familiar with Hawkins' work. And the, the name that came to, to the forefront was Susan Crawley. And at the time, Susan was the uh, curator of folk art at the High Museum in Atlanta. So we had this possibility of working with this uh, curator who's experienced in writing about um, uh, folk art in particular, but had written other books uh, on other folk artists. 
Uh, and so she had a great deal of perspective to bring to this project. And so that's kind of a critical element to any project like this where you have somebody who has a depth of connection. Mm-hmm. So she was um, the outside curator, but you actually organized sure. the show. Sure. And uh, so uh, that involved us reaching out to Susan um, and inviting her to to be the, the guest curator. Um, and then from then, it was, okay, who else are we going to invite to participate in the creation of the catalog? Because we knew uh, at the outset that we wanted to create a catalog. And the thing that was most important to me was that the images in the catalog be higher detail and, and show the work better than previous um, efforts had. And you so that in was terms of in terms in terms of the the um, the quality of the imagery, the quality of the color, um, and in particular the te- what is important to Hawkins is the detail of the surface texture, for instance, with the cornmeal yeah. and and other materials that incorporated into these. So from that point, uh, it was a matter of once we had established who was going to help us with this project, is finding the works. So again, you reach out to a network of gallerists uh, through Susan's connections and my connections and and the museum's connections, and we try to identify where all these works are and how uh, we can bring them together um, Mm -hmm. into an exhibition. And they were gathered from across the U.S., but also Europe. Yes, so there's um, – we know, for instance, there's collectors Hawkins' uh, work in Japan, um, uh, but uh, not in this exhibition. But there are uh, lenders uh, from Switzerland and also England um, whose works are included in this uh, Mm -hmm. exhibition. Mm -hmm. So that's the major part of the work that we do is the logistical challenge of bringing these together – um, reaching out to possible lenders and and encouraging their support through the lending of these works. And then the burden is on us to take care of those works and, and shepherd them um, around, in this case, to four venues, including the Figgy, around the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even though the Figgy organized it, it, it was first displayed in Columbus, Ohio. Sure. I understand. And then where is it going after uh, after it leaves here? <laughs> Coincidentally, it's uh, going to a place called Columbus, Georgia. Um, Columbus Museum of Art in Columbus, Georgia will be the final venue for this. The um, part of, again, part of uh, creating a travel ex- traveling exhibition like this is working with all the potential venue schedules. Um, so in this case, the Mingay uh, International Museum, which was located in San Diego, which preceded the Figgy as a venue, um, was planning on a, a physical renovation of their spaces. So in order to make the exhibition uh, work with their schedule, uh, we shifted things around. And, oh, and so I, I was mistaken that it was in San Diego initially. It, oh, no, it was, in, it was in Columbus, but we had to uh, swap everybody's schedules around to make that happen. Oh. So we ended up with Columbus first, San Diego second, and the Figgy third. Uh-huh. And Tom Figgy was also... Um, somewhat instrumental in, in starting this too. Yes, I understand uh, uh, he was really interested in Hawkins' work. Uh, Tom Figge is very interested in Hawkins' work. So I hadn't th- thought about Hawkins for some time since I left the Smithsonian in the late 90s. And um, and then I found uh, a kindred spirit in Tom Figge and his interest in collecting Hawkins' work. Um, and we were fortunate that he donated uh, a major work to the Figge uh, for our 10th anniversary in 2015. Uh, but Tom was that enthusiasm, that 
uh, his approach, like a almost like a child, seeing these works and and just being totally riveted and excited by them is is similar to the experience I had uh, when I first saw Hawkins' work back in the late 1980s in in Washington. And um, that, I think, is sort of necessary to any exhibition project is that you have supporters who are enthusiastic about mm-hmm. the work that you're going to do and, and are just as interested in it being a success as you are. Yeah. Well, uh, I'd read somewhere that um, William Hawkins had had a persistent desire to overwhelm the viewer, and yeah. and that's really very descriptive because that is, I think, what most people feel. Um, obviously, you felt that way. Oh, certainly, you've, certainly. You've, um, carried these images with you for a long time. Yeah. Then uh, Tom Figge felt that same way. It's yeah. it's really it's really impressive, and it's a nice counterbalance with the French moderns. Oh, I, I think so. And and one of the things we try very hard to do, or as I or I do in my role at the Figge is create an interesting um, uh, mix of exhibitions and um, and collection opportunities. Um, and this, of course, serves our educational programming. Uh, for our visitors so that there's always something something new something sometimes it's close to home like John John Bloom and sometimes it's further afield like French moderns and and then sometimes it's in the middle it's like William Hawkins mm-hmm. I think um, but also too in each of those exhibitions you find a variety of ways in which artists tackle subject matter um, tackle the use of their materials and um, exploit them t- to create the works that they want to create. Mm-hmm. Well, Andrew Wallace, thank you so much for talking today and for your hard work to bring this really eye-opening and creative exhibit to our community. You're very welcome. William L. Hawkins, an imaginative geography, will be open through December 30th at the Figgy Art Museum on the fourth floor. There's a free family day scheduled for Saturday, November 17th. And the Figgy also offers free admission every Thursday evening from 5 to 9 p.m. Don't miss the chance to see this exhibit, which in its highly personal style is a perfect contrast to the French moderns. This has been Carolyn Martin, Talking Art in the Quad Cities for WVIK. Our theme music is provided by a Quad City legend, the late Ellis Cal. Thank you.